Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Tim. I'm very much looking forward to the people listening to this episode and hearing the reaction of this guest that we have on, this very special guest. But before we get to that, you know what's missing here, Tim? How you're doing. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking. You know, I love speaking with David Robinson. David is the father of Daniel Robinson, who went missing in the summer of 2021, specifically June 23rd from Buckeye, Arizona. And David Robinson has been searching pretty much since Daniel went missing. And we met him recently at CrimeCon. And this is now our second conversation with David. And uh, we get a little bit deeper this time. We do. Uh, Relentless, inspirational, and incredibly motivated to assemble a community not only to help find his son, but to help other parents. He almost immediately recognized the need that families have when they have someone who's missing in their life and all other resources have sort of dropped off, uh, law enforcement drops off. Uh, landowners don't cooperate. He immediately identified these needs. So coupled with his search for Daniel, he is in the midst of starting a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit, the Daniel Robinson Foundation. So keep your eyes out for that as well. Make sure to check out pleasehelpfinddaniel.com and follow the mission on all their social media platforms. You can find so much information on that website the story about Daniel, how he went missing, all links, YouTube videos, flyers. You can become an ambassador in your city by just connecting with David and you can help spread flyers if you'd like. You can also text your address information to 803-200-7994 and you could become an ambassador that way. And something that'll take you just a couple of minutes is going to this website, pleasehelpfinddaniel.com, click the link, sign the petition, and that link takes you to change.org, and it only takes just a couple of minutes to, to sign this. And the purpose of this petition is to change Daniel's investigation from a missing person to a criminal investigation, and that change has to happen within the Buckeye Police Department division. That investigative status needs to allow them to use evidence obtained to seek warrants. And you can submit your tips through that website. You can also submit anonymous tips. So you can text or call anonymously. That number is 844-602-0660. So make sure to follow us on social media and please follow the Please Help Find Daniel mission on social media as well. There are links in the show notes. And check out all of the shows that are within the Crawlspace Media Network at crawlspace-media.com. We are also partnered with Glassbox Media. And check out what they do at glassboxmedia.com as well. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. 
The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to the podcast, David Robinson. How are you today, David? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Doing, doing okay here. We're doing really well. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on. Um, I know what you're, you're doing is really difficult, but I got to just say right off the bat, you came on, you, you're smiling, you seem motivated, you seem positive, and we spoke at CrimeCon in the hallway and you, you came across the same way, and it's inspiring. And I know that it, it's just a, a terrible tragedy to um, draw inspiration from, but I just want to put that out there. Whatever you're doing, however you're com- uh, conducting yourself is, again, inspiring. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that, sir. Thank you. Oh, don't, don't with the sir. <laughs> it's, a military, it's a military thing, you know, automatic comes out, you know. <laughs> I totally get it. Yeah. Well, I couldn't agree more. And thank you uh, again for, for coming back on the show. And uh, I know a lot of other family members of missing people here, um, this show as well. And, and it's inspiring to us to have you here, but it's inspiring to, families and and people who who haven't been touched by uh by tragedy like that right thank you okay so how how has your search been since we met you at CrimeCon? well you know um as you as you may know um i had to put a pause on the desert uh searches the organized uh searches there um that's because of funding and some other issues there um that i've really been very responsible uh, when it comes to the love I have for the volunteers that come out there, uh, that don't stop me as an individual to go out and do some things in the desert on my own. Uh, so I'm constantly still doing things where I have to, uh, uh, you know, do investigative stuff out there in the desert on my own. Uh, but at the same time, I'm concentrating on uh, mostly of getting the forensics done on this vehicle behind me and also the clothing and everything that wasn't done um, at the scene. So that's my concentration is there. And also, um, as I was saying before, the 501c3, Daniel Robinson Foundation that uh, that is coming up also. Great, and and that um, nonprofit that you're starting for this. At what point did you decide that that was where you needed to go? You know, uh, as you can imagine, just by uh, you know, just look for my son. Um, I'm I'm bombarded by a lot of other families uh, who's gone through similar situations. Um, the times that when we, in my searches we're finding human remains out there in the desert. Uh, a lot of families are reaching out, you know, concerned about their loved ones. Um, in, in, the, in turn of those events, uh, just talking to the, the families, um, hearing their stories. I've, I heard people who have family members missing for five years. And, and, and the way they're explaining those stories to me, it's not like it happened yesterday. So I know, know that very well, that feeling, because every day for me is like every day uh, starting over day one. Uh, so I know they are pain. I, I couldn't be human if I didn't respond to that. So I was able to respond to that. Um, wishing I can do more. I know what I have been going through uh, since I started coming out to um, Arizona to search for my son. It was very hard. Didn't know who to turn to, um, how to get into help, uh, how hard it was just to get media coverage. Um, so that gave me a passion and a drive to help other families not to go through the same thing. Uh, so that became the birth of uh, Daniel Rawson Foundation and the fact um, of my son's name. Uh, he's a very, very intelligent young man. Um, have high dreams and hopes. 
Um, you know, he wanted to do some things, entrepreneurship. I just go on um, because he's such a great, great young man. And, um, and this inspired me to uh, make sure uh, in honor of his name, the Daniel Robinson Foundation will be born uh, to help other families. Because that's exactly uh, what he would have done if he's uh, uh, right here with me now. And please do. The floor is yours. Please go on. Tell us about okay. uh, tell us tell us about Daniel. Uh, yeah, sometimes I can get long winded, uh, uh, but you know it's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, my son, you know, like I said, very very bright young man. Um, you know, one of the things I miss the most is uh, you know he, he's very inquisitive. He well, he comes to me and uh, asks me a lot of questions uh, about things in life. He's always asking something, always asking advice. Um, always wanting to do something, um, you know, he, he's, a, he challenges not only us, but he challenges himself. Um, you know, I gave you guys the background, his story growing up, he was born without one hand. Um, you can rarely ever, you know, we just have to point those things out, but you'll rarely hear us talk about it when he, in his, success, his successes, that's because he lived his life like that. You would never, you, you have to physically look at him, um, just staring off. Um, but he, he, he's such a lively person that you, you kind of forget that he was born with one hand. Uh, because he does everything and anything he wants to do. So, like I say, he inspired me um, with that. Uh, he's a very friendly young man. Uh, you know, our family, you know, dynamics as well. We may have some little, um, anything that may come kind of like a little wedge, uh, he'll, he'll get between that and bridge those things back together. And uh, so that's his Daniel's nature, very much nature, very well missed by his family and friends. So, uh, of course, of course, I'm doing everything I can as a father. Uh, first of all, he's my son. He's a Robinson. Uh, he's my son, and I want to make sure that his well-being has been taken care of. And uh, did Daniel have a lot of friends growing up? Uh, well, you know, um, my 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 ex-wife during the time, his mother, um, we 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 kind of sheltered them somewhat. I can say, uh, and some of those reasons because of the things that how we had to grow up. Um, you know, uh, we grew up in circumstances where uh, we had to. Um, uh, be careful. Uh, so we know to try to be mindful of our children. We make sure there was in certain schools, for instance, uh, we kept them away from certain things uh, to make sure they uh, stay focused on educations to, you know, you name it. Um, the, the typical thing that parents will try to do to get the best of our children. Um, having that, um, but most times Daniel and his siblings would have uh, friends from school, you know, saying in school, that's where they had their friendships. Uh, we didn't see too many of them coming around the house and we'd have them spending the night and things like that. But uh, once Daniel got in, in college, for instance, uh, you know, my daughters, they all went to the twin, his twin sisters and him went to school around the same time. And uh, they always often come to me, man, Daniel, uh, he's he's always partying all the time. Have all these friends, everybody knowing we walk down the street, they already always call his name out. Um, very popular around the College of Charleston. And uh, um, but one of the things, of course, as a parent, I'm worried about his education. But um, yeah, he, he's, he's a, he has a lot of friends uh, based on what I've seen from college into now um, coming out of uh, when he's missing. And uh, does Daniel have um, a lot of friends in Arizona? And does he have some geologist friends as well and coworkers? Well, he, only one coworker I know that he's a friend with that, that he goes out with and hang out. I guess you guys probably can read the report and know who that person is. Uh, outside of that, he did have a few uh, that come in town to visit or he went to New York himself to go visit his friends. So um, generally the ones that he do have is out of town now, uh, once he got out of college. And once he got out of college, he, uh, immediately went to work. Can you give a little, uh, background as to the path in which led him to the, the job that he had before he disappeared? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, um, I always had to put this out. Daniel graduated with honors. Um, you know, he went to take a class, 
uh, in uh, Flagstaff. Um, and um, right out the right out the graduation, I didn't understand the way they did this thing, but he had to take a class uh, for his graduation somehow. Even though we had the graduation, and um, uh, so he went out to Flagstaff. They um, uh, flew him out there uh, to do his final class. Um, um, and then once uh, he was doing that class, uh, he did have a friend. I want to back up a little bit. He did have a friend of his um, uh, uh, in a fraternity, um, one of his best friends in college. Um, they they they, they one of the founders of that fraternity. Uh, his 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 family owned the company, uh, Matrix New World, Matrix Southwest Groundwater. Uh, his parents owned that company. Uh, so when Daniel was in Flagstaff, uh, of course, I think through that um, that company um, hired him on straight uh, from that class. So Daniel didn't ever come back to South Carolina that we thought he was anticipated after that class. He just went straight to Phoenix, uh, and then when he started his career, has there been any? update in the official investigation since we last uh, spoke with you? Well, you know, uh, as as reluctantly, I have to say, um, you know, I, I don't really don't have any real information from the Buckeye Police Department in terms of, um, um, you know, I just hear rumors or things like that. Um, they put out in the public that they are investigating. Uh, but as in coming to the family, and they don't give us any kind of information about anything. Uh, but I can say on my behalf, uh, yes, there, there are some new um, leads there that came out. Uh, some of those things um, just literally was in my um, um, comment section. I, you know, I'm doing a lot of interviews and doing a lot of stuff on, on YouTube, for instance, and uh, some comments people put there. I don't get to look at the comment section as much, but it was brought to my attention by uh, my team. And uh, so I was able to start investigating. I did report those things over to the Buckeye Police Department, of course, their law enforcement. Uh, at the same time, you know, conducting my own uh, with my investigator. We we currently uh, checking those things out. I just want to get back to the uh, the job real quick that Daniel had. Um, how much did you know about what he did on a day to day basis there? And can you share what that was? I personally, when we spoke at CrimeCon and we were talking about that, I find it really fascinating, and I also think that it sets the sets I guess sets the table for his disappearance I feel like people really need to know uh, the circumstances of his job and and what he was doing on a daily basis well you know I, I didn't find out the details of that until um, I went to go search for my son out desert out there in the desert and his co-workers uh, actually educated me while uh, we were always out there searching um, but what I'd known they often called me uh, from the job site since he had that job uh, we talked for two hours every time uh, a lot of times, like I say, he's at those well sites. What I have learned is that Daniel, uh, his assignment is to go out to these various well sites, no matter where they are in Arizona. Um, these sites are generally always in the desert, and it is always involving uh, some new community uh, that will be built and things like that. So in Arizona, what I found out is they have to have wells um, in, in these communities, I guess, case of a water shortage, uh, they have to have groundwater. Um, Daniel's job is to uh, visit these wells. Um, he's a scientist himself. Um, by law, these wells have to produce at least 100 years of water. Um, and um, his job is to, to uh, determine that. Uh, once he determined that, he also gets samples uh, from those well sites, determine what type of rock uh, sediments in that water. They had to know what content level of, I guess, uh, acidity and things like that of that uh, rocks uh, for, that's in those water. Make sure it's drinkable to make a long story with that. Um, that's job, Daniel's job. Uh, like I said, um, uh, from his job, like I said, he's he's a field geologist, uh, so he could just get assignments. He, he gets assignments on his computer. Uh, they say, hey, he, he gets up every morning. Um, I do have his phone, so I do know how his lawn work. 
uh, gets up in the morning, look at, he have his coffee, look at his um, assignments, and then they give him directions, um, a mapping. Um, he go to those locations where he'll meet a representative from whatever that drill company is at the time. Um, that's every time. Um, and, um, and from that point, um, he's there uh, most of that day, sometimes it's at night, uh, to um, um, get those water levels. Hmm. Okay, so he'd go out and meet meet folks um, in the, right. in the desert. Okay, by the by the wells. That's right. Is this con- is this considered a dangerous job on any level? Well, our families are uh, uh, from our opinion. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, one of the things that was very disappointing for our family, uh, my auntie and Philly, she called that company. She was raising hell. Excuse my expression. I hope I can say that. Um, but she she was really uptight. Uh, one of the biggest things is that we learned. Uh, that generally the field geologists at that company um, often are by themselves. Um, they go out to these uh, locations alone uh, to meet one person out there or so um, and in these um, areas. Now, what I'm saying is they don't have the um, protocols there to say to keep make sure that the employee made it to these destination or going to make the, to that destination that to provide so many things of their own just to make it to these locations. Um, um, so, you know, uh, the safety aspect to me is not really good. And the fact that, uh, just like what happened here in my son's case, uh, he, he's going out there in the desert, um, an area that he has never visited before. Um, I know he's a geologist. He loves hiking and things like that. Uh, but you know, still, yeah, it's, it's, it's ultimately can be dangerous. It depends, um, on the situation at the time. Yeah, of course, because one can enjoy hiking and hiking is one thing. But when you're collecting samples and you're paying attention to something aside from like your foot position and you're doing something else, you know, that's uh, it's 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 a little different, especially if you're dealing with the terrain and the sun and any sort of, I guess, a rattlesnakes. I mean, I don't know what's right. in that area, but there's there's so many other factors that you're you're dealing with. And when you're hiking, you're kind of looking for those things. But when you're working, you're I don't th- I think maybe your guards down a little bit. And that's true. Uh, Daniel, you know, he, he had to wear a hard hat. I do know he had that. Uh, you can see yeah, it right yeah. here behind me on this picture there on the ground. It's his safety vest. He had to have the safety vest. Just typical same thing you, we would do at a construction site. Uh, these guys are drilling. Um, sometimes I guess he go there in some places where he go to these sites, they are just drilling those um, wells. And uh, uh, of course they have to have those safety features there uh, because they have these big cranes up there. You know, something could fall, a crane could fall, anything could happen out there. Uh, like I said, as in for um, the terrain and the elements out there, very hot. My son always carries a canopy. Uh, that's one of the things you heard about. Uh, he left at a young lady's house. He used a canopy to keep the sun off of him, for instance. Also, you had uh, other hazards out there in the desert that we learned just by going out there. You got the mountain lions that live out there. You have, um, you know, other wildlife, snakes, like you said, scorpions, whatever the case may be. Uh, we do have wildlife out there. So um, I, they generally stay away from humans, of course. Uh, but, you know, they are out there. And um, we spoke a little bit about Daniel's car last time and, and how it was found. Can you just... Talk to us a little bit about what was found in the car. And I understand his clothes were found outside the car and, and his wallet as well. Oh, that is correct. Um, right here, you can see behind me, um, that that blue area there, that's the pile of clothing. Um, Daniels, um, they, uh, allegedly, the um, um, reason why I say allegedly now, because of course on my investigation, we had to determine if that indeed is Daniels' clothing. I still haven't proved that yet. Uh, but allegedly, that's his uh, his clothing in a pile. Uh, the pencil turned inside out. We do know there was a wallet there with his identification. 
in it, uh, some some of his cards, uh, debit cards and things like that. Uh, but the wallet itself was empty, it was no cash or things like that. Um, one of the things also is the cell phone uh, was found inside the vehicle. Uh, the same cell phone, the family I was calling, uh, Dane's phone, at least almost a full day, a little over a full day before it finally started going straight to voicemail, I guess the battery died. Um, inside the vehicle also was his hard hat. Uh, the hard hat was filled with rainwater, um, almost to the rim. Um, also, there's a um, um, his keys, uh, keys and things like that, his work computer um, that he get his assignments on. That was in that vehicle also. So little items like that, um, some other little small items. But like I said, a case of water, uh, two cases of water, untouched water um, inside this vehicle, stuff like that. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of indications of uh, some people want to think that maybe he had changed the clothing, but we don't have those evidence either. So we're looking at every aspect we can. Okay, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the rainwater found in his hat. I uh, that that seems a little confusing to me. It is very confusing to me. Um, it was brought to my attention by the Buckeye Police Department. Um, they did give me pictures uh, in the vehicle um, where we, you can actually see the rainwater. Um, I can tell you just by the weather report. Um, it was when this vehicle was found. It was just well into getting it, just about to get into the rainy season. Um, the monsoon season in um, Arizona. Um, at that time, um, weather-wise, there wasn't any significant rain uh, happening. Uh, but this hard hat was filled with water. Uh, the hard hat was located in the back seat. Um, the only puzzling part for me is um, uh, how the water got in, in the hat. Uh, because, you know, we do have a busted window in the, in the driver's door um, where rain, if it was rain, it can come down in there. Um, and, um, but it was in the back, like I said, everything else was in the back was intact. It wouldn't have came through the sunroof. Uh, but yeah, but nevertheless, there's some rainwater, uh, well, water, uh, inside and fill up that, that, that one hard hat, but no water anywhere else in the vehicle. So is this like a traditional hard hat where it's kind of like a bowl? Pretty much. Um, yeah, it's uh, just like a regular hard hat. You see, uh, construction, this had matrix, uh, new world on it, uh, white, uh, white, uh, hard hat. Yeah, sorry to get hung up on this, but it is really interesting to wrap your head around. There was no other rainwater that was found in the vehicle? None at all. And one of the things that, uh, from my investigative standpoint, um, I would believe that it was also, in my opinion, uh, put there to just kind of distract and say, hey, this, this vehicle is sitting here for a length of time and collect the rainwater. Um, and the reason why I say that, because, um, you know, this the vehicle here is in a, what is called a ravine. Um, you can see the little gap that's under this, um, the uh, the vehicle there. Um, that's a stream. That's where a stream of water runs through whenever the monsoon season um, uh, comes through. Water, a lot of water comes through there. Uh, it goes down to the, what is called the Hacienda River through the Wagon Wash area uh, south of this um, location. And if um, a lot of water was coming through um, that wash uh, and that vehicle was there, um, and it was raining that much, um, there would be almost like a ring. Um, if you look at your tub water. I don't know how nobody uses tubs anymore, but let's say you're really dirty and you have a ring around a tub. Um, it'd be collecting a lot of that uh, debris and things like that. So that vehicle would have that ring um, around the top part of there um, near where the sunroof is because um, it'd, be, it'd been blocked because it'd been stopping a lot of water and debris that goes through there uh, to make it down to that river. And we don't have none of that. Um, so that was before the rain season. Um, it's before it really rained. I did have testimony from the rancher who found the vehicle, who lives out there, there was no significant rain ever happening um, up to that point. So uh, it's still a puzzle why that hard hat was filled with uh, water uh, to appear that it was rainwater. 
Yeah, and and the car is on its side. It's on its side. That's correct. So it's not like um, the the hat was probably sitting in the back without rainwater, and then like like it didn't have the rainwater, and then it rolled. It obviously would have fallen out. So somehow after when it came to place like that, that's when the the one that's really interesting. How did you get that information? Was this like on the police report? Well, you know, they gave me the pictures. Uh, this picture right yeah. here, for instance, uh, came from uh, what Buckeye Police Department gave me. Um, so that's where I was able to do some of my own. I'm, I'm, I had to put my own investigative hat on. And uh, my investigative hat was, uh, investigation is totally different of Buckeye Police Department. Um, like I said, they determined uh, the water in the hard hat is rainwater, and it came from rain. Uh, I determined it's been put in that water, uh, that water been put in that hat to uh, throw off as if the vehicle was sitting there uh, in some significant rain. So uh, it, I look at it in two different ways. And it's a, that's, it's a head scratcher. Yeah. And very much so. Yes. Did the police, um, st- they stopped the helicopter search at, at one point? I heard you on, uh, on a video talking about that. Yeah. And it, it was heartbreaking. That was, that was the point of me, uh, making it out to Arizona, uh, quick, quick, um, like I did. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to believe my son was actually missing. I was hoping that uh, they would found him quickly, uh, find out what's going on before. I, either way it would happen, I was being coming out to Arizona. Uh, but like I said, the day, the night that Daniel went missing, um, the day he went missing, I did put in a missing person report. Uh, later that night, found out that he was actually indeed missing in the desert. I did ask them to go out and fly out there and look for him because explaining the reasons why. Uh, they told me it was nighttime. They couldn't do it, of course. Um, um, you know, I had suck it up in a sense. Uh, stayed up the entire night, but they said he was going to do it early the next morning. So I said, okay, I'll stop that up that night uh, and just do other things until they're able to do that search. But like I said, the next morning, an officer, Haley, took over from the night crew um, officer, and um, he said, hey, yeah, Mr. Robinson, we're going to have the, the helicopter. We're getting the helicopter out there to search for his son. I'm very happy at that moment. And then they called like an hour later and said, he called back and said, no, the, the uh, flight was canceled. It was unauthorized. His higher-ups, he said, it wasn't me, but my higher-ups said, that Daniel is a grown man. If he want to disappear, he can't. And, and that's the reason why um, they canceled the flight. Um, hearing that, that automatically let me knew that, know that it was not going to um, uh, search for my son. So I had to make it a fiend as fast as I can um, and uh, do it myself. And that's why I was there. And uh, speaking of the search, are there uh, geologists from other departments, other environmental groups that have uh, volunteered to help with the search? Because I would assume that they know the terrain, um, even park rangers, uh, and on that, um, are there any rumors like in town, uh, specifically within like those environmental, uh, like that environmental company community? When I started my searches, I have, uh, man, it's, it started off with sometimes we have like 200 plus people out there, uh, helping the searches and they do come from different ranges. I did see some people never in the groups and in the full groups, like, um, the biker groups or the hiking groups and things like that. Um, but it, it'd be individuals. That may say, "Hey, I'm I'm also a uh, geologist." Um, of course, there were some people from Daniel's job that showed up. I don't know if it was a company mandate, uh, but at least about eight of the workers there uh, geared together and, and came out to support uh, my searches. Uh, so, you know, I was able to uh, talk to some people who have uh, skills, um, as in from um, hiking themselves. Uh, but I haven't found anybody except some of the local residents there uh, that knew about that terrain and that that part of the Sonoran Desert. And uh, uh, but they were out there too to kind of assist and give me some information about the desert circle. You know, of course, I'm doing. I'm a military guy. I know we have to do our recon, and I've been doing recon before I started my searches. 
going out there every day uh, with my binoculars, uh, trying to get a feel, doing some um, uh, work of um, learning about terrain and washes and things like that, how that desert out there work uh, before I put volunteers on the ground. So um, those are some of the things that had to happen. So, you know, so I did get some education from that, from those people once they got there and also from some research. Can you tell us, were there, do you, or do you know if there were any, if they fingerprinted or if there was any DNA that they've been working with? I know, I know the Buckeye uh, investigation has left a lot to be desired, but I'm just curious about those. Well, one of the things is, uh, um, it is it's simply put, no, uh, they didn't do any forensic work or anything uh, on the scene. Uh, this is like, again, this is a picture overlay, of course, of Daniel and stuff. Uh, but this is a picture that they gave me. Um, what happened is on a July the 19th, of course, the vehicle's found. Uh, here it is, July 20th. They turned the vehicle over to me, uh, told me if I didn't get out of the compound, they would have it towed and uh, to pay storage fees. Um, now, having possession of that vehicle, I didn't actually get it out of there uh, on that day. A DS officer gave me three days. Uh, but I already had a meeting set up uh, with the chief of police, Chief Hall, Chief Sanders, and all of his staff. Um, while the vehicle was still sitting in the compound until I had it towed out. Um, in that meeting, uh, one of the biggest things I learned is that uh, because of the one picture they gave me at the time, um, I didn't see any forensic marker. I'm not, a, at the time, an expert on um, things like that, but I do know that most times when police officers are doing any kind of uh, forensics work, they use these orange markers or yellow markers or something to indicate that uh, with the pictures. Um, I did ask Chief Hall for those pictures. That was one of the pictures of those pictures I asked for. I need. He said, I'll give you everything. Um, they did tell me they did helicopter uh, searches. They did the um, uh, drone searches um, and also uh, using cadaver dolls, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but they did provide me um, everything they said they had. And that was um, just the pictures itself. Like I said, none of them had the forensic marker. And I asked them about that. I said, you know, pretty much it was, it, I had an NAACP um, member there as an observer um, to listen in. And also I had a recorded uh, uh, meeting with them. Um, and I asked them, hey, look, uh, why haven't y'all done any forensic work on the scene? The detective uh, sergeant said it's because they didn't find any blood in the vehicle. Uh, they didn't see any blood in the vehicle. That's how you put it. They didn't see any blood in the vehicle. Uh, well, then that's when my question was, how you know my son was even driving that vehicle? Uh, it's obviously it's driving, it's his vehicle. It's the answer that I got. Um, that wasn't satisfied, uh, satisfactory to me. Uh, made me very upset in that meeting. I uh, demanded immediately for them to do some fingerprinting on that vehicle. Um, and um, um, they did agree to that. Uh, so they was able to keep the vehicle even longer, um, just a little couple of days longer uh, to do those fingerprints. So that's when the fingerprint, if you guys look on the report, uh, that's when the fingerprinting was done because I requested that. And then after uh, that meeting, of course, um, they gave me everything on the scene and evidence bad mark for safekeeping, told me to take that with me. And then after they did the fingerprinting, I did have the vehicle pull up with my private investigator. I didn't realize that uh, uh, law enforcement needed blood evidence before doing forensics. I, I didn't know that either. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, I'm not an expert, but, you know, one thing yeah. for sure. Yeah, I would think they would at least uh, what I was learning now, especially from my private investigator is that most times they would um, do all the friends work on the scene. They had to. And then they, he said they should have never, ever even turned those, those things over to me for safekeeping. And as Daniel's going to come back and grab his things, um, you know, uh, that should still be in some type of evidence locker and the vehicle still should be stored in their facility at this point. Yes. Just in case, just in case. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And we we had a listener who heard your interview that you did with us from CrimeCon, and she had a, has a friend who either worked or still works or is in like the management um, level of another environmental agency, and she remembered his stories about you know some of the some of the jobs that they would do, and she was surprised at how competitive. Uh, that industry, at least on his end, was. And she had emailed and said, uh, can you make sure that you ask David if uh, there were any known rivals or if it was a competitive industry or any sort of contracts that companies were competing for? There might be an opposition, maybe development of that land, maybe something being surveyed. Was there any sort of anything like that going on at the time? Well, you know, I I hear a lot of rumors. Um, I hear a lot of things from some people that live out there. Um, you know, um, and from my research, I did find out on my own is that that area out there has been, they've been trying to develop that area since the 80s. Uh, and some of those reasons is because of the groundwater. Uh, it's because, of, like I said, they have to have 800 years of water. Um, and, and some of the reasons, some other development issues. They, so they've been trying for a long time. I do know how Hughes um, um, having this big city that's coming out of there called a smart city. Uh, so they're dumping millions of dollars out there. Um, there's some little um, talks about uh, the Douglas Ranch out there and some little issues with that. Um, those guys are having um, um, a fights over the, over the land, which part is really their land and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of rumors and things I hear uh, going on there. But the only thing I can uh, pinpoint, like I said, is they've been trying to develop that for a long while. Um, and if my son was to have, and I know my son, my son is a, a young man who, who does his job well. Um, you know, and if he, he, he believes in something, he's been taught that way, you stand up for what you believe in. And uh, one of the things is I know he's going to look out for people. Uh, if he found that uh, those wells would not produce, for instance, 100 years of water, he would say something. And I know my son would do that. Um, but, you know, that will stop a project uh, by law. They wouldn't be able to build a so-called smart city. Uh, so so some of, the, some of those rumors would be like, hey, what if, um, you know, um, that's some of the reasons why. Uh, he went missing. I do not know. I don't have any evidence of that. But that's some of the suggestions and things like that, theories that's out there. What about the FBI? Has uh, has the FBI had any involvement in at this point? Well, I did uh, talk to, uh, well, um, you know, of course, in my searches, we've been finding human remains out there um, and bringing some closure to families. Um, I did send a letter out to Chief Hall. Uh, of course, you guys know I've been fighting for the FBI for a long while. Um, one of the things is when I wrote that letter, I uh, wrote a long letter, uh, CC to Senate managers, to the mayor, to you name it, uh, in this letter, my attorney. Um, and in this letter, I described the fact that Chief Hall went on to C- CNN uh, to say, hey, my son went missing. This is a suspicious nature. And when he missing suspicious nature, also the fact that, again, uh, my son went missing in what I call in that letter is a crime scene. Um, these are human remains been found at a skull or been found um, not far from the way the vehicles found there, uh, human skull there. Uh, it's a big crime scene. And um, so I thought the FBI should be looking into that, not not including also that at the time I didn't know, but I, I assume. Uh, but it was definitely close to uh, BLM land, Bureau of Land Management, which is federal land. Um, I thought the FBI should be involved. So make a long story with that. Chief Hall did agree. Um, he said, hey, you know, we're going to have a case review. I was going to send that to the FBI, have a case review to the FBI. Uh, my attorney immediately uh, sent a response back and say, you know, we would like to be a part of that. If she can't be, she definitely, I need to be there as a family member. Um, the department did it uh, behind my back. To make a long story short, I did wait on their response. They never gave me one. Uh, but they, when the time came as a response, almost a week later, 
uh, the detective came to me and said, yes, they had a case review. Um, and the FBI determined that, say, Mr. Robinson, you are doing such a great job on your own. We don't need to come in. And they told me that's what the FBI told them. Um, so, you know, they have not came into my son's case. Um, I did find out, I was really puzzled to see if that really did happen because I didn't believe the FBI would say something like that. And I later found out through a team member of mine who have those strings and found out who the agent was. And I did have a, um, a talk with the agent um, who um, now says, um, now because of hindsight now, I found out that my son's vehicle right here is indeed on federal land, is on BLM land. Um, I did talk to him about it. Um, that, that agent, and he says, it's Buckeye's jurisdiction. And I said, no, I don't get that. I mean, it's on your land. So when that, no, it's Buckeye's jurisdiction, their job. And that's the way it stands right now. So I'm still going to fight, you know, to make sure I get the FBI involved. Can you just back up a little bit? Because Tim and I had the same expression going on, the same reaction. Who was it that said to you that the FBI said, no, we're just going to leave it to him because he's doing such a great job? Well, it was a detective. It was a detective of uh, a Buckeye, Buckeye Police Department. The yeah. detective of Buckeye said that he spoke with the FBI, and the FBI actually said to him, ah, oh, the father of that missing person is doing a great job, so we're not going to get involved? Right. The way he was doing it, he was relaying uh, what was told uh, in the meeting. Uh, to me, He was telling me what was told in the meeting. Right. That's right. It's maybe a great I just compliment. watched too many movies or something. Yeah, great compliment. But maybe I just <laughs> yeah, watched too know, many movies. That was offensive to me, yeah. It was very offensive to me at the time. You know, uh, here I am um, um, relying on, uh, on donated funds. Um, I'm relying on, on citizens of Buckeye, of some, a big portion of Buckeye citizens out there, uh, relying on them to do, even come out there to search with me. I can't search a desert by myself. It's very offensive that because I was begging um, law enforcement for certain, certain equipment like specialized drones, uh, camera equipment that can go down in these wells and, and um, mines and these vertical mines and things like that. And I can't get no help from law enforcement. And then for them to say that at the time, you know, just saying, hey, look, I'm hearing that from them. Yeah, it, it offended me. Um, I know I'm not great as uh, um, FBI. I don't even have the resources of the FBI. And um, yeah, so it was very offensive, but um, that's nevertheless, that's what was told to me. And I, I, I don't want to accept that, um, just think that the FBI would actually say that. Yeah. Um, so speaking of drones, and I apologize if you already said that and I missed it, but uh, you mentioned that you're asking for drones and the camera equipment that can go down into, uh, you know, can explore different areas. Have you have you had any companies volunteering that? Have you done searches with drones and camera equipment like that? Well, you know, I try to reach out to nonprofits um, who have those type of drones. I did purchase a drone, finally purchase a drone for my desert searches, but it's not a specialized drone. This is something I can use just to survey the area and keep the volunteers safe. I like to fly it ahead of us and see what we're coming to when we do line searches, things like that. Um, but this, the, the drones itself, I was unable to get some of those um, um, nonprofits to come out uh, with their drones. And also uh, the Buckeye Police Department, um, of course, they didn't bring anything out. But as in when it comes to searching those mines and wells, uh, we did lo locate a couple of mines, uh, probably like five of them now in close proximity to where my son went missing. These are vertical mines. Some is unmarked mine. They don't even know they exist. Uh, some prospect mines. Um, very dangerous, very scary, uh, going straight down in the earth like that. But um, the thing is, um, I did want to get those things searched. Searched. I did reach out to the Buckeye Police Department again uh, with the letter with my attorney and uh, to have Chief Hall send those officers out there uh, to help me in these searches. Um, of course, they came at the handed like they did one time before. Uh, but we did meet, I was able to meet with them about almost a week and a half later out there in the desert on a weekday. 
um, and to uh, try to search these um, these uh, mines, uh, these uh, wells that my son, the two, one was when my son was last seen and one north of that. Um, they did come with a someone with these cameras. These cameras was, um, um, I, you know, I tried not to be sound like a police basher or something like that. So I tried to make sure I didn't put it out. But I was really disappointed. They came out with uh, two things I asked for was cadaver dogs um, and also um, cameras to search these wells. Um, they came out with some little fluffy little, I, I thought it was a household pet to make, be honest with you. I don't know what it's, I can't say what cadaver dogs really are, but it's really cute little fluffy white dog. Um, they said the dog didn't alert on anything. Um, and then they had got this, uh, some kind of, uh, some guys from Maricopa Pet Sheriff Posse or something they call themselves, um, uh, came out with some type of camera um, that they outfitted themselves. Uh, they went down to one, the well north um, of where my, not the one my son was missing at, but one north. I went down with those cameras. Those cameras went to the water level, barely touched the surface of the water level. And they pull out and they're saying, hey, that's pretty much it. They was really upset that the camera got wet a little bit. That was unacceptable to me. I didn't say anything to the public, but I went behind the scenes and got my own person to come in um, and made some arrangement with the uh, companies, uh, with the uh, owners of those wells. Uh, those owners didn't want us in the wells, uh, but I made a center. The center was to have the company I was working with to come in and give them a free well inspection and so I can get these wells checked. And so it's a win-win for both of us. They allowed us in. They made sure I had an insurance. So we had to do that kind of deal. We had to make a long story short, um, I did was able to get the company, a real company, to come in. And we submerged uh, those cameras in both of those wells. One was 800-something um, feet. One was close to 1,000 feet deep um, after the water level. And we made it all the way to the bottom. Um, I do have a question about the one north. Uh, there's appeared to be something there. I'm having an expert to look at that. Something has looked like the top of a skull, but we're not sure it's uh, been buried. We do know a large amount of dirt been dumped in there for whatever reason, a lot of stuff that shouldn't be down in there. Uh, those are things that are being searched, right? Uh, going to be um, it's, um, been taken care of now. I'm working on behind the scene to get that uh, taken care of and looking to see if, if somebody indeed buried something down in that well. Uh, but, you know, but like I said, that's real detective work. That's real uh, money that I had to do myself, things I had to do myself, and I'm not getting from law enforcement. Whew. Well, good for you to figure out a way to like backdoor that. Yeah, it's good yeah, problem good. solving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sense that that might come with your military training is how to problem solve. You know, yeah, a lot of that. That's right. How to, and also, you know, my my son. You know, he's uh, yeah. my son, and I'm gonna do everything I can. I had to be very thoughtful, uh, and uh, and you know, just take my time. And it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work, and you know, researching and things like that, and try to figure things out. I'm always constantly. You can probably imagine. I always constantly think of different ways I can find my son um look out for my son so and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors we took it all we brought them to our land an endless night ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse carved it in the blood on our backs we did not see we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but 
feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. There's the matter of the mileage that is registered on Daniel's Jeep. Can you explain any discrepancy that is going on there with the mileage? Well, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, my my former investigator. He 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 was able to find that. You know, it's crazy because um, um, when the Buckeye Police Department gave us everything. Like I said, they gave me that vehicle the day out there and threatened if I didn't get it out there. Gave me the clothing, marked for safe plea keeping. When I hired my investigator right after that, um, the first thing he did was to go up and want to know about this black data, uh, data uh, that was pulled from the vehicle. Uh, he made it, made it up to the Buckeye Police Department to, to ask them for a copy of that. They gave, gave him a copy and told him they didn't have an investigation. Here's everything. They gave him everything they had um, because they say they're not investigated. They have no more leads to follow is what they told me as well. Um, my, my investigator was actually was able to read their data that they pulled. Um, it's either they didn't know how to read it or they didn't read it at all or whatever the case may be. But a lot of that came from the data that the Buckeye Police Department pulled themselves. Uh, he was able to read that. Uh, and uh, with the infotainment system that he had pulled out of the vehicle to have analyzed uh, analyze in California uh, with a, I think it was like a 900 page report uh, that came back from it. And they was able to pinpoint a lot of things like the 11 additional miles uh, on the vehicle. And also the vehicle's first initial crash happened uh, four hours after my son was missing after the nine o'clock, of course, around the one. And, and, and um, also um, uh, the first, with the first crash um, itself, like I said, um, it was driven another, like I said, 11 additional miles after the first crash. So, you know, all that stuff was pulled, uh, pulled was right there, um, but they didn't read it. Um, I was told by the Buckeye Police Department before I brought my investigator in um, that the vehicle was going 30 some miles per hour, went down a ravine, flipped and turned, blah, blah, blah. And that's it. There was no additional miles. There was no no this. Um, my investigator also was able to, to find red transfer paint on the vehicle. There's nothing red in the desert. So that there's another indication that the accident did not happen here um, and it happened somewhere else. And in fact, that the, the um, again, I'm not going farther, but um, the fact that the uh, rancher that I had interviewed with my investigator uh, who testified saying the vehicle wasn't there uh, two to three days prior, he was there and it wasn't in his ravine. So uh, it, it's a lot to that, right? How long in between when Daniel went missing was the car found? Well, it was almost 30 days. Uh, he went missing on June the 23rd, and then the vehicle was found by that rancher on the 19th of July. Okay. And the rancher claims that the car wasn't there before, like, say, the 16th or 17th of July? Right. It's a two to three days prior. And, you know, what backs it up for me, um, where I think his story is credible, um, is the fact that uh, the Buckeye Police Department did a first initial search for my son. They looked for his vehicle uh, almost three days after he went missing. Um, and they did, they covered that area where this, where this vehicle eventually is going to be found. They say they did this extensive search and I have to believe they used a Phoenix Firebird helicopter. Okay. And then almost two weeks after that, they went out there again, uh, with what is called, um, Silver Air Patrol, uh, crew. 
Um, I was there. I didn't believe the, the first search they was there. So I grabbed my daughter and, and uh, we all went to um, the area and waited on them that morning to see if the Silver Air Patrol came out. They did. They came out. Uh, but some reason they didn't want me to come with them. They made sure that didn't happen. They put a had a, one of the Silver Air Patrol guys to post his vehicle at the gate so I couldn't drive through and follow and see what they're doing out there in the desert for whatever reason. And um, but they did ultimately say they did the search of the same area where this vehicle was found, eventually gonna be found. Um, and they came up empty-handed on both of those searches. And like I said, uh, if you to back that up, is that rancher who came after that point on the 19th um, said that July 19th to say that the vehicle wasn't there two to three days prior because he was there uh, searching for his, his, his cattle. You know, he's a cattleman, uh, third, uh, fourth generation, I think he said he was, but that's his land. And he's out there uh, chasing his cattle. His cattle always come down this ravine. South of this ravine is a um, corral that he, he gathered his cattle at and he's waiting on them to pass through there uh, so he can, you know, track them, stuff like that. The accident that was on the report, I guess, is a, like a black box report for the car? Yeah, he was able to also determined uh, with that black box data is that the, the vehicle turned over. Uh, I don't know if it was a key or push button, but it was turned over um, uh, four to six additional times after uh, the vehicle's crashed. So it was cranked, uh, at least cranked or turned over uh, four to six additional times. Somebody just kept cranking it uh, four to some times after the first crash. After the first crash. Okay. And right. is the second crash listed on the black box report? No, it wouldn't. It would. The black box would not record that. Once that first crash happened, it wouldn't wouldn't report anything else um, from that point, uh, unless they cleared that um, that black box, uh, cleared it out. I guess with the key or something, some kind of way to clear that data out. Uh, but for now, it just he got that determination that it was multiple crashes based on uh, the damage on the vehicle. Uh, the damage didn't match this terrain here, uh, this terrain and this uh, ravine. Um, you know, of course, the vehicle did crash because it came down that ravine. It hit the bottom. Uh, but the damages don't don't match. Yeah, I don't. I would also add that I'm not sure why turning the ignition when it's on its side would, right, would work. Would do any good that in that situation. Yeah. Right, right. And you know, and then you know, don't want to forget that um, on examination of the vehicle itself. Like I said, I did mention the red transfer paint, but on the outside, the stereo uh, on the windshields, um, there's two impressions as if somebody took something out out of bed or threw something heavy into the windshield on both sides, one on each side, um, the one on the passenger side, whatever it was, hit the uh, crest of the uh, windshield where the metal begins, kind of dented at the end, and they, and they kind of rolled down on that side of the windshield. But all both of them are impressions as in something was trying to go inward, uh, not outward. So um, that's an indication that somebody was beating the vehicle also as well. And you're a private investigator, looked over the vehicle, came to that determination? Right, right. That's right. Were there any um, footprints, any other tire marks, any other sign of another vehicle at the site that the Jeep was found? You know, um, when I've heard from the Buckeye Police Department on the 19th, uh, on the 20th, uh, they called me almost over 24 hours after the, the vehicle was found. And the first thing that this rancher told us, that told us in the, in the testimony, he said, the first thing the Buckeye Police Department told him, don't alert the media and don't alert the family. Uh, and for whatever reason, that was one of the two things he did. He told the rancher not to tell the family. They did not tell me about this vehicle um, almost 24 hours after, like I said. Now, uh, one of the things that they told me from the scene there, hey, Miss Robert, they told me about the vehicle. I didn't give a crap about the, uh, the vehicle. Where's my son? Uh, we didn't find your son. Uh, we used uh, cadaver dolls. We used tracking dolls, uh, search dolls. 
um, and uh, uh, we use helicopters. Uh, Mr. Robinson, the hel we use um, helicopters that was flying so low, you can hold your hands up and you can touch the bottom. The man was leaning out like this and looking down on the ground, searching for your son, and we didn't find nothing. Uh, we didn't find no footprints. We didn't find any, because uh, at that point, I already told me that everything on his body was on the ground. We didn't find any foot tracks. We didn't find any um, any wheel markings and, and nothing. No sign of where he went or anything like that. Or somebody, you know, like you said, uh, picking them up. So those were the things that was told to me. But as I'm going out there to search myself, of course, I finally found out where this, they never did take me to the crash site. Um, uh, Chief Hall eventually came down uh, the weekend after the vehicle was found. Um, first time he ever did it. Chief of police now uh, showed up at my search that time. And uh, the first thing he did, instead of um, addressing himself to me and my daughter, um, he went to the crowd. He came out grandstanding. Hey, everybody, y'all want to know where this vehicle was found or something crazy? Um, and we all walked. He had walked us to this crash site. Um, he was pointing us to, to the wrong ravine. Uh, point us down to some ravine. It didn't look like the one picture they gave me. I was really stunned, but they you know say, hey, nevertheless, he you know what he's talking about. He said he was there. He started talking all loud about the cartels in that area. And they landed the planes on, on Sun Valley Parkway at night and all kind of crazy stuff. And then that's when my daughter tapped me on the shoulder. Dad, this other guy wanted to speak to you. And it, it happened to be the rancher. The rancher showed up there. He put us in the right direction. Um, showed us where the vehicle was um, uh, actually crashed. I noticed it was because I remember the stomp in the background. And then he showed me the glass on the ground there. Um, that was the time and the only time that I seen uh, Chief Hall at that um, at the scene. He came in once he heard the rancher correct him. He said, I don't know why Chief Hall telling you the wrong place. And Chief Hall turned red in the face, walked past, got in his vehicle and drove off. Um, both of them have never been seen in any of my searches ever again. However, one of the things I wanted to point out is that it's because, you know, saying because of what you were asking there, um, one of the things is um, I really puzzled, I really puzzled about the scene itself. Uh, in my opinion, just looking at everything, it was, it was pretty much to me a stage, just like my investigator would suggest. And who was the last person to see Daniel? Well, according to um, the report and according to everything that was told to me uh, when I came out of Arizona um, and, and from my son's job, um, because he went up to this location, he did had was assigned to go there. Um, was this uh, guy named Ken uh, from a company called Weber? Uh, he's the supposedly been the last person at the time. Um, of course, they you guys probably heard if, if you alluded to that, it was another person that came forward uh, that said that um, um, he's seen Daniel as well. Uh, he was out there uh, target practicing with his kids, uh, his children, and he saw my son through the scope of his rifle. Um, then he seconded saw him again near the, uh, what, is, what we call as a wagon of watch on the bank. And uh, he went to approach my son and uh, my son gave him the correct place uh, to um, um, target practice. Hey, say my son told him, hey, this is not the area that you need to do. We work on this area. But he pointed my son, pointed him out to uh, the area where he should be uh, shooting. And um, so that so that turned out to be um, the second person who said he's seen Daniel. And he also um, acknowledged himself as um, a federal law enforcement officer. Uh, he even showed me a badge. I, I dismissed him at the point. Uh, I sent him to my investigator, my private investigator, uh, my private investigator, and also my search coordinator at the time. Um, they vetted his story. They told me it was credible. I did mention him in my family press conference, but we later found out he's not a federal law enforcement officer. Um, and um, I did check with the Buckeye Police Department this year uh, in January. Uh, I talked to Detective Biffin about it. He said they vetted his story because they did do an interview with the guy. And they said, hey, his story is credible. 
Um, and um, uh, but I asked him about the federal law enforcement agent line that he's an officer. They said they have nothing to do with his story. Uh, and they believe his story is credible. Now, in my investigation, I don't believe the story at all. Um, that's why I don't really mention them anymore. It's because it's one question. My son had never been out there ever in his life. Uh, this is the first time he had to even get direction from the worker himself to even get to that location. How he direct somebody to where to shoot? Hey, this way you go shoot at out there in the desert. He wouldn't know that information. So that's why his story to me is not credible, but to the Buckeye Police Department, it's credible. Yeah, I mean, unless Daniel passed like a like a gun a gun range and uh, and knew where it was, <clears throat> like I don't, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and so this guy is out just out in the desert, just just firing his rifle. And that's what they do. See, that's BLM land where the vehicles right here located. Um, that's federal land. Um, that, that when we go out there searching for my son, um, people often we see them out there a, a lot. Um, they'll go out there and they'll set up their little, um, you know, silhouettes and things like that. But they always shoot against because it's hilly. It's hilly down and things like that. So they, they shoot up against something. Uh, but they, they are out there talking to practice. Also. There's no range out there, uh, no established range and things like that. It's just people go out and set up their own little setup, little setup and, and, and target practice. So you're saying if that person's account couldn't be true because Daniel wouldn't know where to right. fire out there. That, yeah. that is correct. That is correct. And that, that you know, is, is amazing. Um, at this, all the time, um, the way I came to that determination is um, through my Q and A. Um, you know, I do a Q and A. Uh, I had a uh, person come in ask questions uh, on a Q and A. Uh, her name is Shiro's Nation. Uh, she comes up one of the people there, um, and she asked the question. And, and you know, and I thought about it. You know, I'm a logical person. I love logics. And I said, like, you know what? Why didn't I think about that? You know. And she's right. And so that turned over my whole thinking, um, and it, it makes a whole lot of sense. It, it really does, and then it, it kind of even come like raises the question: is why someone who is a federal agent would need to know where the target practice area would be in the first place if he's out there right. target practicing? Like, why? Right. Why would that? It just seems like such a weird uh, thing to say that that's what they spoke about. Like, if you're right. there right. and you're a federal agent on federal property, and you need to be told by a stranger where to go target practice when you're trying to target practice that just doesn't add up and one of the things that's, that's struggling me you know he turned over in my eyes from uh just being a person who seen my son last as a possible suspect in my eyes and i hate to put it that way and the reason why is because his story and it consisted of i first saw your son in the scope of my rifle and you know i'm out there a lot and you know a lot of people out there um shooting quail and things like that. I, I remember one time I went out, uh, we followed the 11 additional miles. My, my searches are based on some of that too, the science and also that 11 additional miles on the vehicle. And we went to go church, tra uh, search this area we call the, uh, the corridor area where they're gonna have an interstate put through there eventually. And uh, we went in that area and those guys was out there shooting quail. Um, I had my rifle at the time, you know, I'm military. Had my rifle at the time carrying along. We was doing a lot of hiking and um, in that area and all of a sudden, you know, somebody piled and you can hear the, the rounds go over our heads. Of course, I went into my military mode, uh, but like I said, people out there are shooting all the time. Um, they, uh, um, that's what they do. They got to shoot in quail, um, target practicing and things like that. So um, for him to have a rifle and say he was target practicing and that he first saw my son in the scopes of his rifle, uh, start making me um, question about um, his whole story too, as well. I'm uh, hoping that you know he wasn't a person who uh, used his rifle uh, to take my son out or anything like that. Definitely a person of interest. Definitely, uh, definitely presenting a 
image in your head upon introduction right. that you don't want to have. Like this yeah. is a very interesting way to to start that conversation. Right. In the scopes of my in the scope of my rifle. I mean, he admitted right. that he was pointing his rifle at, <laughs> at Daniel. Like, you right. know, you don't see him in the scope unless you're actually pointing the gun. Right. And yeah. the way I took it at the time was that um, you know, maybe he was pointed out and Daniel Vigil came into the scopes of that. And that's the way I was taking it on, on the um end because the way he came to me saying he was a federal law enforcement agent, he he presented a badge. Um, I don't know what badge is supposed to look like, you know, so I believe it. I believe it. And um, at the same, I kind of believe it, but I, for some reason, the gut feeling say, no, nah, something don't feel right. Cause he didn't, his, his appearance. And I don't like to judge people by appearance, uh, but his appearance didn't set right to me at the time. Uh, so I sent him to my private investigator uh, for him. That's his job. Um, I just need to concentrate on the searches and that was his job to vet the story. And like I said, um, my private invest, my former private investigator at the time vetted his story. Uh, told me uh, that, yeah, he's indeed a federal law enforcement officer. Uh, he corrected me a few times in my family press conference. And um, and I went with that until I found out later um, it wasn't true. So from where Daniel left that day to, I guess, I guess he was following a certain path. He was following a route. Have you and or your private investigator maybe retrace those steps and looking for where a first accident might have happened, maybe any distress in the terrain or anything? Well, you know, only thing I was able to do, I can't speak for my former uh, uh, private investigator and my former private investigator now uh, doing something totally different. Uh, but I know in my own personal investigation, I did do, and I put it on my YouTube, um, I did a trace of the story uh, from the guy who last seen my son. Uh, one of the things uh, for me that was troubling is the fact that he kept saying, uh, well, he, well, it's not in the report, but the things he said to me with witnesses, I did report that to the Buckeye Police Department. They chose not to include that in the report or include that into the investigation. Um, but one of the things that was told to me by this guy when I interviewed him myself uh, personally, because, you know, as a father, that was the first person I needed to speak with was a man telling me my son just waved out to him and just disappeared. I need him to look me in my eye and say that, you know. And so I was able to get that interview with him. I did my military techniques to befriend him a little bit um, and let him tell his story. Um, he kept telling the same story exactly verbatim. I was telling the officer. And then after, after that point, he changed his story. He started saying things about how he stayed left of the tracks um, um, until he got to the T-Junction. He didn't want to disturb him um, because he knew that this thing, the police would come looking and this thing is going to come national. It's going to come big. Um, you know, that kind of stuff Why he followed the tracks um, out west and went through a gate. He went another mile or so um, before he got out on foot and he went up on the hill. He started painting uh, rocks with red paint so the officer could know where to come to find these tracks. But you know what? What I did is I followed those same as that story he gave me. Um, one of the things I know from being in the desert a lot, those tracks don't just wash away. And not only that, um, 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 a lot of tracks are there. Often, because people come through those little uh, areas where he was talking about to the well site, uh, people travel that all the time with their vehicles, quads, and all kind of things. Uh, so there's hundreds of tracks and seemed like on the ground, and it wasn't that much significant rain at the time when it, or the day that Daniel went missing. So I kind of went in and replayed this whole scenario um, and showed everybody how these tracks are still there from months of us being out in the desert. I stopped my uh, my searches out there, and, um, um, and those tracks are still there. So it's hard to determine which tracks is which and which direction they went and things like that. Um, so, you know, I really had a, a lot of question with that. 
and also showed everybody that if you listen to the count that he told me, it would take exactly to the scene here. You had to go um, uh, two miles down um, um, down south to get to the T-junction. He followed, like he said, uh, stayed left of those tracks and didn't disturb him. He made it to a gate. You had to go through a gate um, to get into the area to get to this point. Uh, he drove another mile or so. Um, then he got out on foot and he went out up on the hill. On the hill, you had to go up on the hill. To, on the other side of the hill is this, this area here. So it's almost like he was giving a story of how to get to this place right here to me. That's the way it was to me. And so I just wanted to make sure that people point that out um, the way that he told me the stories and the, and the story that he came up with, in my opinion, uh, will suggest that it, it leads you right here to this, um, this crash site. Uh, but as in the 11 additional miles and things like that, I do not know where it comes from. Yeah, and there's never been any other area that you've seen that could possibly be where a car could have overturned or anything or been pulled out of? Well, I can tell you this. Um, this has been overlooked a long time, and I used to talk about it a lot. Um, two days prior, I think it was like two days prior, um, before the vehicle showed up in this ravine here, um, I did get a, a, a message from my family uh, who always, always followed the Buckeye Police Department Facebook. I don't, I didn't have time to be looking at social media stuff like that. Um, this one gentleman came on there uh, with a picture of a vehicle that looked similar to my son. This is real blurry picture, but it's the back of the vehicle. And he said, "Hey, I see this vehicle on the side of the road that looks like the Jeep." that you guys are looking for, I guess, trying to get Buckeye's attention. Um, my aunt saw, like I said, they saw it. They alerted me about it. I went to talk to this guy in the inbox who in turn sent me the picture himself. He told me him and his wife uh, riding down the road. They see it on the side of the road there, uh, uh, smashing to um, um, this tree line or whatever. Uh, to make a long story with that, um, I did ask him where it was. He gave me the location. I grabbed my daughter. I called the detective, uh, Biffin, at the time. And say, hey, this guy was uh, on there. Say, hey, you see a vehicle that look like Daniel's vehicle. And before I could finish my sentence, I say, that is not your son's vehicle. I'm like, well, how you know? You didn't let me finish my sentence. Um, and I went and completed my sentence and say, hey, you need got to go out and send somebody out there because it's in Buckeye. I need to send somebody out to make sure it's not my son's vehicle. I had after keep asking him. He said, okay, well, I send an officer, officer out there to check it out. Um, before I can get up, when I got the phone and I before I can get my daughter pick her up to take her out there. Uh, the location the guy gave me, um, he called back. The gentleman called back and said, Mr. Robinson, he said, I went back out there again. The vehicle is gone. I'm like, what you mean gone? He said, um, it was there just, you know, he was there an hour before that, but it was gone now. I said, well, Buckeye said he's going to send an officer out there. He said, well, I've seen a, a police vehicle pass by. So I called the detective right back and said, hey, did y'all have that pull out of there? He still to this day didn't give me an answer to that. Um, but I did go out there anyway. And it's kind of ironic. Um, this vehicle was found on that corner, was seen on that corner that, that looks just like the back of it looked like my son's vehicle. And then two days later, um, a vehicle showed up in this ravine out here. So those are things I tried to tie together um, that the vehicle probably was there and then um, was able to make it to this location as my investigator uh, suggested. How does he like evade that question when you asked him, did you have that vehicle pulled out of there? And you said you haven't received an answer. How do you how do you evade that question? I I, I get a um, well um, it's it's not a question they evade. Um, you know one of the things is they just don't give me the answer for. It. He said he's gonna look into it, uh, check into it again, and they just don't give me an answer. Um, just like um, some other things that happened transpired during that time, um, I had to call the FBI and, and put a report in myself. Uh, the FBI told me they had to be invited by the Buckeye Police Department, and they still haven't followed up on those things. So it's it's some it's just the way they do things, um, in my opinion. 
It's really frustrating. It is frustrating. I'm sorry you have to deal with that because, I mean, there's really no harm in law enforcement telling you a yes or no whether or not they pulled a vehicle out of somewhere. I mean, there's... You say he's going to find out about it and still haven't found out about it, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) Right. What's what's it to find out? (laughs) I'm so sorry. And um, do you know if Daniel was was having any uh, struggles with his mental health at the time he went missing? No, and you know, there's some suggestions of that. Um, in my opinion, no. And my family opinion, no. Um, you know, um, my son talked to me two days prior. It was about two or three days prior uh, to him going missing. And um, everything sounded okay to me. Uh, he mentioned a young lady that you guys uh, heard about. Um, he never mentioned that he was in love with her. I uh, never mentioned called her a girlfriend, only the fact that, you know, he spent the night there uh, with the young lady. Now, um, those things, for instance, to me, was problematic as a as a parent. You just don't spend a night over a woman's house. You don't know. That's basically uh, my stance on that, because you never know she have a boyfriend, husband, that type deal. Um, nevertheless, he's a young man. He, he liked women, and that's what the facts are, you know, so we're young people. Uh, but as in his mental health condition, uh, I have never, my son is a brilliant young man. He never expressed that to um, us as a family. We had to literally sit in an interrogation room with the Buckeye Police Department, my daughter and I, uh, and try to think of anything that would seem um, odd and strange about Daniel's behavior uh, leading up to his disappearance. And my daughter, I don't think she can come up with some weeks before he went missing, um, him coming over to her house and sitting there and staring off, you know, say, oh, yeah, he was staring off. I mean, I stare off. I don't know what it really means, but that's the only weird thing we can come up with. And uh, But he was able to put that in their report because of that. Yeah, I stare off all the time, so I don't know. Uh... <laughs> yeah, one thing I want to throw out real quick, too, and one thing in that report, and I do have to clear that up, um, and I often do, um, I never said that my son was in love with a woman he didn't know. And, and then my daughter, she's really upset with it. Also, we both are trying to get them to retract that. Um, some person told me, say, good luck with that. Uh, but definitely, uh, we have never, ever, and I want to make sure the public always know that, that never came out of my mouth, never came out of my daughter's mouth. It's good to clear up. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so many things in these, um, every missing person uh, story that we cover, uh, there's so much that just gets like, you know, like the telephone game. It's yeah. It starts off as one thing. And then, you right. know, you can yep. simply say something like my son saw a woman who, you know, he didn't know he, you right. know, he was getting to know. And then 14 people later. This. Right. Yeah. So it's always good to keep that redundancy going, especially right. if it's. Yeah gonna i don't know take take some uh investigation off track or something and so what's next um for your searching well you know um uh, i have to be out there in that desert again um i have to when i say again i need the volunteers out there with me um there's areas that we haven't searched yet you know my last search that i did before i had to put it on pause very hard for me uh we were doing a line search and it's a, a, a area that we're searching. We only had uh, roughly 20 people and we did the best we can. And there was so much more of that land that need to be uh, checked out before it gets to a point where I can rule the desert out that my son is in. And uh, well, I can't totally rule that out ever, but I can say we did a very good job of, of, of almost making sure that he's not out there. And um, so I can be something I can be kind of set up, sell it with. Um, it's hurtful because, you know, I, I had to, like I said, put the pauses, but my goal is now is to uh, make sure um, that I have the funding. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I did put a pause on search too is because I have to do the forensic work on the scene. I have to, when I say on the scene, um, his clothing had to be done. 
Um, the safety vests had to be done. The shoes had to be done. The red transfer paint, we got to know where that comes from. We got to um, 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 check the um, the air bags that's in the vehicle. I had to get the, you know, the whole forensic work, this period, his, his work computer, his personal computer, um, just all of that cell phone already being taken, one of them. One of the cell phones that um, my searcher we found near the scene, um, we don't know if it belongs to Daniel or not. So all that stuff forensically had to be done. That's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, so I'm definitely uh, saving up for that. And also um, um, the fact of I need to get the forensics done urgently and um, the searches need to be done too. So I'm trying to trying to balance those two together, but that's, that's the reason why I have the 501c3 also to help uh, towards that funding uh, for the searches and also for the forensics. And you're uh, out there on social media, you're out there on YouTube, you're making uh, this search and your, your investigation very well known, and you have an amazing website, pleasehelpfinddaniel.com. Can you talk about the website, the importance of it, and what people can do if they want to help? Well, you know, the very mo most important thing is, um, you know, from hindsight now, uh, going through everything, I tell us the family's one man, he just lost his, his mother uh, with missing in uh, Phoenix. Um, um, first thing you do have to put a website for awareness, of course. And um, so for the efforts of uh, searching. So the, the best thing for my website is definitely to keep the, the public aware of what's going on uh, so that I can recruit people to come out and help me in the searches. Um, it's good for fundraising. Of course, you know, you can't run any kind of operation, especially what I'm doing right now, the flyer distribution to you name it, um, um, without funding. Um, that helps also. All the information are there. We have events there. I have an event coming out on the 25th of June, the 25th, a day of remembrance uh, for families. And it's dedicated for families of missing, missing uh, people uh, to come out to the, this event, bring your tables, bring your flyers, bring your everything, and um, talk about your family. So that, that is coming up on, in Phoenix on the 25th. Um, you guys can check that out on policehelpfinddaniel.com. Um, but, you know, it's definitely there for uh, the public, um, for the awareness, like I said, to my family. Uh, I started off with two websites. It was uh, one just dedicated for my family and Daniel's uh, being missing. And the other one uh, was, was searchfordaniel.org. That was just specifically for the desert searches. Uh, but like I said, I ingraded those two together to just keep it, uh, make sure it's just one, uh, keep it all at one place. So yes, please search, uh, go for um, policehelpfinddaniel.com. We can also sign a petition. That petition is very important. I don't call it a petition of signature. I call it a voice of people. Um, people standing behind me um, and fighting for what I believe in. I'm putting the pressure behind on the on the department, the police department, to do more for my son. Um, I'm advocating uh, for a change in the system. We don't need this 12 uh, waiting 12 hours before you, or, or more longer to report a person missing. Um, as we know, they even have a, sh a show called the first 48 hours. We know that the 24, 48 hours is the most crucial point of finding someone. If they don't act immediately. Um, and within that 24-hour period, then we got a problem. And so, you know, so that's the thing is um, to try to fight against uh, some of these laws and get some of these laws changed. Uh, so all that's working together. All that's working together. Also, one more last thing, I know I've been long-winded, is that I have um, an ambassadorship um, that I've um, also started with the uh, policehelpfinddaily.com so they can be aware of that. Uh, that would go along with the foundation eventually uh, where I have, have been asking. I'm getting a lot of influence and I'm asking people right now if they want to be an ambassador in your own city, no matter what city you are in the United States, uh, if you want to be an ambassador in your city um, to reach out to me, I will have a Zoom meeting with you all to tell you the ins and outs about that. Uh, we want to get the ambassador program where people, it's, it's part of the, uh, the flyer distribution uh, where I can get Daniel's story out everywhere in every city, 
every state uh, through flyers. So you guys uh, be able to be in charge of uh, distributing those flyers in your city. And um, also, like I said, that'll help with the upcoming uh, foundation where those infrastructures already be there. Wow, very cool. Yeah, very impressive work in uh, in your search. I, I understand how uh, complicated and multi-pronged it is, and I think you're doing an incredible job. Is there anything else you'd like to say um, before we end uh, today? Well, thank you guys for having me on. I, I really was happy to meet you all um, at CrimeCon. Uh, uh, sadly, on the circus, um, conditions, but you you do to uh, really make my day that day. Um, you're very, really, very great guys. I really appreciate you having the time and using your platform uh, to bring awareness to my son's story. That's that's the most important part to me is um, getting Daniel's story out there. Um, again, I want to lately, lastly say also that that also goes to other families. First thing you need to do, sometimes I get it. Uh, the news crew, for instance, uh, my son, it took me three months just to get my son's story out there. And then once the story went nationally, it only last for a certain length of time, then the story changed. You know, narrative, things have to change. They have to go through different things. Uh, one thing is um, you have to create that, that uh, platform for yourself. And um, I have to be my own media. Uh, so one of the things I'm really grateful for you guys sharing your platform to continue to have Daniel's story out there. And also for those families, they need to create things like a YouTube channel uh, to make sure their loved one's story stay out there. Um, you got to do everything you can to make sure that happens. Yep. And this platform is here for you whenever you have an update, whenever you want to come back on to, you know, if there's some information that is new or developing, anything that you feel can help. Uh, if you have a, a search coming up or anything, just let us know. Um, Anytime you're uh, in need of that, you're more than welcome to come back on. And as long-winded as you need to be, you got all there. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.